Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on November 12th, 2021. Linda Langelo is a Colorado State University Extension horticulture agent. The five counties under her care are Northeast Colorado. In 2020, a 100-year event called a derecho devastated the small towns of Akron and Haxton. To help in the recovery of these towns, she sought partnership with the Colorado Forest Service Regional Education Coordinator, Donna Davis, and was able to secure funding from Colorado Tree Coalition to reforest these communities. Linda received her master's degree in education administration from Salisbury State University in Salisbury, Maryland, and graduated from the horticulture program at Longwood Gardens after graduating from Cabrini College with a degree in English communications. During her 40 years in horticulture, she has both implemented Arboreta and has overseen them. As Assistant Director of Horticulture at Salisbury State, she helped implement a campus-wide Arboretum still going strong today. She went on to be the Director of Atkins Arboretum early in its implementation, increasing its exposure in the local and surrounding communities, and as a member of the American Public Garden Association. Currently, she writes a monthly column called The Relentless Gardener and has a Facebook page titled Garden and the Plains. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Linda. We're delighted you could be with us today. I'm honored to be here as, as your guest. I thank you very much for having me. We're delighted that you are coming from Colorado, the northeast corner of the state. An interesting location as you were giving me some information before we started podcasting. Give us a little bit of your background and how you got into trees in Colorado. Well, I started off in the east and, you know, going to college, I thought I wanted to do pre-med. So I went through a lot of biology and botany. Then I switched over to Bachelor of Arts and graduated, and a friend came to me and said, look, Linda, here's the Longwood program, the horticultural program they have today. So I said, okay, I'll apply. And out of all these applicants, I got in. And I took two years of that. Now it's a one-year program. And so from there, I went on to a private estate, and a couple years later came back because there was a job opening, and I had the honor to work under Ed Broadbent and Sharon Loving. And from there, Ed encouraged me to take uh, an assistant director's job at Salisbury State University, and I did, and then a director's job at Atkins Arboretum. And then I decided later on, I wanted to come west. And I got a job in extension at Colorado State University. And I'm a Hort agent covering five counties and I teach adults and children. And, and if I could tell you one of my most memorable moments is teaching first and second graders with an agent who taught nutrition and I taught how to grow the food. And after each lesson, we had them sample food. And this one day we had strawberries and everybody in the class had cleaned their plates of strawberries except for this one little girl. And the teacher said to this little girl, now, you know the rule, you have to try a little bit. And then if you don't like it, you say, no, thank you. So she picks up the strawberry, takes a little bite, puts it quickly back down on the plate and says, that's a real no, thank you. The whole class, they just bust out laughing, adults, adults included. Oh, that's funny. We used to work with children in our community and took the tree program on the road. Um, the kids were just so excited about working outside and planting and planting bulbs. You know, we kind of 
had the bulbs and the trees together because it was a good fall project and then they would have some spring bloom. The only thing that came up the following spring were daffodils because the squirrels ate all the 2000 crocus and we had a marauding group of squirrels in the neighborhood. They, they just love them. But the children were very, they took it on upon themselves to make sure that nobody would hurt their garden. And I think that that's a really good uh, tribute to uh, children and the, what they do in their educational programming. Um, we had gone over to weed and one little girl came over and she said, what are you doing? I helped make this garden. And I said, well, we were the ones that helped you put it in. And I said, we're weeding it. And I Aww. said, and that's something that kids don't typically like to do is weed. And she goes, oh, I'll help you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody likes to weed. Nobody likes to weed, right? <laughs> but, but kids are sponges, you know, and we were instilling habits in them at a younger age because they already had a program at third and fourth grade grade level and I said well why are we waiting that long let's try this and those kids were just on the ball with everything yep it is it's the youth and the enthusiasm that hasn't been blown out of their sails yet so right. um, I think that that's the best part of, of of working and teaching is when you have the children that are inquisitive and which brings me to the point of the inquisitive nature of me and that whole area in Colorado when I was reading the information that you had a derecho there, which are straight line winds that can just devastate an area. Tell us a little bit about that and when that happened in the northeast corner of Colorado. Well, June 9th was the last day and Kathy Sabin is our Nine News meteorologist and she said, people, you've got to get prepared because we're having this three-day event, and she said it was a hundred-year event, and you're going to have wind speeds anywhere from a hurricane to tornadic, and they're just multiple thunderstorms that come through so they can flood an area, and that's what happened in Akron and Haxton. They got hit the hardest. They got more hail than we did, and when, when you hear that hail, Fortunately, in Julesburg, we only had like one inch size hail. It sounds like somebody's throwing rocks at your house. And it only lasted for two minutes, but when it lasts for even longer than that, it can damage trees to the point that it scars them so badly, they lose their bark and their vascular structure dries out. And people are turning to me saying, well, what can I do? Well, water them in times of drought and try to keep them out of stress. And, you know, at the same time, we're here, we're sitting over the Ogallala Aquifer and I'm saying water, water, water. And the Ogallala, Ogallala Aquifer is now 30% depleted because we're not getting that recharge back, but it's, it's all that we can do. So when this storm happened and we lost hundreds of trees, I decided, that this was an educational teaching moment for these communities. And in these communities, we have a lot of Siberian elm, which was introduced in this country, has become invasive, and it came from Asia. And so they needed better trees, trees like Triumph elm and Frontier elm that are drought tolerant and can live in a wide range of soils. And they don't mind the alkalinity at all because our soils here are 7.2, 7.5. In some cases, you get neutral or a little bit acidic, but not in most cases. And people have this tendency to want to take eastern trees like maples, silver maples, red maples, and grow them here. And then I get these calls about being chlorotic and how iron is an element that helps photosynthesis complete its cycle. And if they don't get enough iron, they're not gonna feed themselves. I actually had a first grade teacher ask me what photosynthesis was. And I had to demonstrate through taking a leaf and showing her, that's okay. It was another teaching moment. That's not their focus. And they still wanna have a beautiful tree. You do everything you can to help them get there. And so I wanted to help these people in Akron and Haxton get back some of the trees that they lost. I couldn't replace all the windbreaks 
or all the blue spruce that or the catalpas that they lost, but at least we could reach out to interested parties. And we did. We reached out to town managers who jumped right on board because their parks were devastated. And in Akron, I have a master gardener and she reached out to the golf course because she does a lot of volunteer work at the golf course and they wanted trees. And Akron also needed trees more in public areas than with private residents. Paxton, we had a few residents and I reached out to people that I'd worked with to spread the word besides the press releases. Because when I first put out the press release, I only had a couple people and I said, this can't be. So I kept pressing ahead and finally got some other people on board and we, we got it done. Well, as an extension agent, don't you have to be a leader in the community? In other words, lead where, where it's necessary and uh, your, your, your position is extremely important when it comes to anything outdoors, anything that would be um, uh, connected with the public and as well as the private sector. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct about that. And this was a moment to lead, lead them forward because from all of my site visits over the 15 years that I've been doing this, you hear questions of what's wrong with my trees and well it's the drought you know you can see through a tree because it's lost its needles or it's lost its leaves drought starts from the inside out that's our saying here i had this one farmer and he called me and i told him that and he had this light bulb moment when i said you know if you measure your tree at breast height if that's 10 inches Per inch, that tree needs 10 gallons. So that's 100 gallons of water. And that could be if you have five days of 100 degree temperatures or more, that could be three times a week. And you could see the look in his eyes like, oh, my crops need water. My trees need water. And there used to be subsoil moisture. Now, this last season, there wasn't much subsoil moisture because the season before and the season before that, we have not had the precipitation that we've had. And if we're lucky, we could have 17 inches on a really good year. On a bad year, we're lucky if we have seven or nine at best. Wow. So nine inches, that to me is, it takes my breath away because we're in a place where we get like 40 inches a year. And when I think about 40 and then we have these periods that are a little bit dry, I get a little anxious. Like we just had a week and a half of no rain. You can't help but gasp to think nine inches. Wow, you really have to be extremely frugal with how you handle your water. Right, and that's why we have programs that we introduce to people called the Plant Select Program, which is a collaborative between Colorado State University and Denver Botanic Gardens and other professionals. And they trial plants for a number of years and then they will pick like seven of them and introduce them, grow them in their nurseries and introduce them. And Apache Plume is a native here and they introduced that in the Plant Select program. One of the trees that I added into the communities was Seven Suns. And Seven Suns is from China, but it passed the Plant Select program trial. And it's a beautiful tree, exfoliating bark, it can be a shrub, but you can develop it into a tree. It has white flowers, and after the flowers bloom late August into September, you get these red seeds. So it has two really spectacular flushes of color. Yeah, that, 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 um, let me give our listeners the Latin term for that one is Heptacodium myconioides, the little sepals that come out afterwards and then produce that seed that you're talking about. Uh, is really attractive and you think, oh my gosh, you know, I have a white bloom and then it looks like it's blooming again, but it's not. It's, it's a nice surprise. And I remember that tree in the Arboretum when I was teaching at Temple that no one really knew who that was. And that was back in 2008 or so, maybe 2007. And interesting story that that tree was brought into this country in 1908 by E.H. Wilson but it was brought at the same time that Stuardia was brought over and Stuardia made the bigger show. So when they were plant hunting again in 1980, 
the plant explorers brought that back again for the second time. People went, wow, what is this wonderful plant? And of course, somebody said, well, we've had that here since <laughs> What happened then is people jumped on it because it was something new, it's different. And again, it is extremely drought tolerant. And, and it has this wonderful appeal because it has that multi-trunk, as you mentioned, right. and that exfoliating bark, especially in the winter when the leaves are off of it. It looks just as nice in the wintertime as it does in the summertime. Right. And, and so, I mean, it's a great pollinating tree, too. That's what I was just going to say. Pollinators yeah. love it. Yep. Pollinators love it. So what, what other countries did you recommend to plant after this derecho? And the derecho, I just want to clarify, was in 2020. So you were able to get a lot of work done between that time, although we were in the midst of a pandemic. Well, and, you know, doing a lot of the groundwork first and finding out, well, where am I going to get the money for these trees? Trees are not cheap. You know, you want a two-inch caliber, which we didn't want. We decided smaller trees in containers, easier for the folks to plant. And we weren't going to get into all the bald and burlap issues with cages. And, you know, do I keep the cage? Do I keep the burlap? So we looked for smaller trees. And the research is that if you have a one-inch or smaller tree, it will outpace the two caliber tree and people were like, what? You know, they think bigger is better. Bigger is not better. So I went to a local contact that I'd worked with over the years, Donna Davis. She's the regional educational specialist at Colorado State Forest Service. And she said, you know, Linda, there's a program from the Tree Coalition in Colorado and they do emergency funding. And I said, really? She says, yeah, when they had the tornado in Holly, they applied and they were able to reforest Holly. And I said, okay, so how much should I apply for? And we talked about several figures and I said, you know what, I'm gonna do $4,400 because I'd figured out how many trees I could get with that and what supplies I could get. And then I went to a couple of other local funders, Higginbotham, which was in, Holyoke in Phillips County, Holyoke and Haxon are in the same county. So they would fund half of what I got from the 4,400. And then I went to Golden Plains Inc. and asked for signage money and some other miscellaneous money. And we got $8,000. And we went to go order these trees. And that was almost another nightmare because COVID woke up so many people. And we put our order in and they said, well, we can't get the shimards you want in that size. Would you take chinkapin instead? And we were like, well, okay. And they gave us some, some leeway on the price. We were very good about it. And it was a nightmare to get through, but we got through it and we got the kinds of trees that we wanted to. We got some lindens, we got frontier elm, as I mentioned, we got triumph elm, we got tatarian maples, we got the seven suns, and mostly that's the, the majority of the trees. We got a couple of choke cherries, a sucker punch, which doesn't sucker, smaller tree. And, you know, everybody was happy with the trees they got. But as requirements for this grant, they have to have a three-year commitment. And up front, they had to prove they were the property owner. They had to send me a photo of the damaged tree that they were replacing. And they had to watch a webinar given by Donna Davis, and I hosted it. And everybody did. And then I gave them two weeks after they picked up the trees at a specific place in Haxton. And within 24 hours, everybody had their trees planted. Wow. I was shocked. I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> they had to let you know that they had them planted and you heard from everyone. They, they were so happy to get those trees. I mean, it was amazing. And I'm, I'm glad because that showed me they were ready to commit to those three years. So this next season, we'll go around and inspect and they will show me a picture and their watering schedule that they're going to stick to. Right, right. And when did they get these trees? I know the event happened in 2020. Uh, they, they got the trees in April. This past in April. In April 2021, yes. 
Yes, it wow. took us it took us that long to get the grant approved in October and then to put together the tree list. We sent applications to the towns and people could walk into the town hall and get an application, fill it out, fill out the requirements, and then we asked them to do a mason jar test. We have our master gardeners do this. And I had a master gardener who actually went to all the public places in Akron and she did a mason jar for each location. And you take a cup of soil, you dig down 10, 12 inches, you let it dry out, you put that cup of soil in the mason jar or any jar for that matter, and you fill water up to the shoulders and you take a teaspoon of dish detergent and you shake it up, put the lid on and shake it up. And then you put it down on a, a level surface and you let it sit there for about 10, 15 minutes. And the particles will all settle out. Sand will go to the bottom, silt will go to the next level, and clay will go to the top, and the dirty water will, and debris will float above that. And so if sand happens to be the most, like four inches in that mason jar, well, it's gonna exhibit properties of sandy soil. Or if it's clay, it's gonna be clay. I have to write that down. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard that either. A jar? Yeah. With the soil? How yes. much soil? A cup. A cup of soil. Let it dry out. Dry out. Then put it in. Yep. And then put the water up to the shoulders of the, the jar, whatever you're using, mason jar or whatever jar. Uh-huh. Put one teaspoon of dish detergent. And if you can get non-sudsing, then that's better. Right. And then put the lid on, shake it up, and then put it on a level surface and walk away for 10 or 15 minutes and it'll settle out. And then you draw a line to, right. you know, demarcation and you know that the sand is at the bottom, silt is the next level and clay is at the top. That's fabulous. And that's so, so easy to do. Yeah. And easy for people to do a soil test that way or soil type that way. That's fun. So many clients, when, when they ask me to do a site visit and I go and I look at their tree and, and I say, well, you know, this is going to eventually die back. You want to think about maybe replacing it or, you know, moving the location to another. And I will ask them, what kind of soil do you have? And they don't know. And so I'll tell them to do this. And it's an eye opener. I mean, all plants have to survive in soil, right? Well, the other thing too is that we haven't concentrated enough on soil in our overall picture of science. Even in horticulture, we, we had one class in agronomy and that was it. And you think to yourself, we should have had more because soil is that important. I, I took geology. Yes, I had geology and I had those other courses, but you know, as a horticulturalist, that's all we had was one agronomy class. Right. And uh, we need to, we need to know more about our soils. Yeah. I think the last few years have been good for soil consciousness. You know, some good documentaries have come out. Uh, certainly more people are embracing composting at home and organic gardening in every way, compost tea, just, you know, the rewards of keeping kitchen scraps and making it brown and crumbly. But Eva's right. I mean, it, it is a, an oversight. And boy, you think about, Eva was talking about the big planting at a private school campus and it was all the tree planting sites were augured out of a heavy clay and uh, just a recipe for a ticking time bomb in terms of tree failure. Yeah, absolutely. And getting them to understand that trees and all plants make their own food. They're the only living beings that can. And people feel the need that when they put a tree in, they need to fertilize it. That creates top growth. And so the root development isn't there to support the top growth. And your, your point about composting is, I try to encourage people to take all their leaves, use them in your garden or mow over them. That's great nutrition for your soil. Why are you putting it in the landfill? That costs us in the long run. So it's just a little bit change of thinking, but I think COVID woke up a lot of people. Yeah. Um, we're glad that it woke up. You know, you're talking about leaves and I take a walk every day um, past this stream and I always look down and take a photo of it. And 
right now at this year is the best time because the water's very dark from all that leaf debris creating that tea, that compost tea. You know, we think of that and you can look at that as a good example of how that, that tea will actually feed not only the fish that'll be coming into it later on with the eggs and downstream it's for the clams with this with the leaves they need that leaf debris to hang out in uh, freshwater clams and later on the mouth of the river into the ocean that's all part of it and we don't really think about that you can't think about a tree as a single thing it's part of a food chain it's part of an environment and you know we're losing trees at a rapid rate and they are so much a part of the hydrology cycle that planting them is part of the way that we can get that back. We develop and then you look at all these new developments and you don't see a single tree mm -hmm. on, on a lot. Yeah, and that's a, that's a fallacy. Really hostile soils will still have a tree growing in it. Yes, on Garden the Plains, my Facebook page, there was it uh, Sterling, the reservoir, I had a master gardener, she took her family camping and she sent me this picture of this tree. I don't remember, I it might've been an elm and it was in this rock crevice and some of the roots were exposed and it was doing just fine. And it's like, how did you manage that? <laughs> Right, because and there because there's some trees that are actually what I call deconstructionists. They actually dig down deep and get the water and bring it to the surface for other plants as well. Right. You know, the different types of trees that you have, whether they're more surface rooted or whether they're deep rooted, will determine what kind of moisture is going to be in that soil and who's bringing it up from down below, you know? Exactly. Like people here love Colorado blue spruce, but they do better in the mountains because they get up to 45 inches of precipitation, but they have adapted. However, they have shallow roots. So in times of drought, it's the blue spruce that you see have the hardest time and Austrian pines, look where they came from. They don't like dry snowless winters. They like moderate moisture. And if they go through a dry winter and then they have a wet spring, they're gonna be shocked. They're stressed, but we use them as windbreaks. Yeah, there you have it, yeah. Yeah, that's actually one we've seen quickly disappearing in the last 10 years. Yeah, in the last 10 years, ours are just uh, from needle cast. In fact, I was on a property the other day, a client of mine, Another arborist and myself made the decision to take one of her maples down. So in the meantime, we're planting all kinds of other trees in, in place of. But then I went to do some cleanup on her conifer. She had a white spruce and she had a Norwegian Norway spruce. And both of them had needle cast. And they didn't even know that a Norway spruce had needle cast. It was when I wor started working on the inside that you can see all the branches, all just totally yellow, the needles totally yellow all the way down from top to bottom. Last year's growth and this year's growth. So yeah, it's, it's the heat, the dry, the heat, the humidity. Humidity, yeah. It's just too much for it. Yeah, here we don't have as much needle cast. It only happens in very, very wet seasons where the humidity stays high. Mm -hmm. And then you start seeing it spring up all over. Yep. And then in our case, there's nothing stopping it. It's a goner. Just give it five years and it'll be gone. And I've yeah. seen that with a lot of clients' trees that I said, okay, well, we know that that blue spruce is not going to be here in the next five years. Let's plant something in the meantime. Leave it go. Leave it do its thing. And then when it's ready to be cut down, you'll have something else in its place. Right. So you have to think about that way. Something better. Yep. So... You have extreme weather, obviously, in your area. Tell us about some other things that you're doing um, in your communities to help with crazy weather. Well, we do a lot of demonstration gardens, and we have a high and dry garden that has a number of plants in it. And we try to just get those plants established and then stop watering, and then they're on their own. And so... We have mountain mahogany in there, U Utah serviceberry. We have just a number of 
natives, Apache plume in there to demonstrate to people, these are the plants that you can use in your landscape. These are the plants that are not going to have you use a lot of inputs, either with water or fertilizer and the great pollinators. So trying to get people to go in that direction, because you can talk about something like Apache plume here, and no matter how many Facebook posts or articles, people are still going to some of the traditional plants that they have that take more water. And why exactly? I don't know. But maybe after this last season, that will change some of their thinking because this was a really dry year when you don't have any precipitation for two months and you get maybe three hundredths of an inch. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> just, just enough to... to Wet the ground. Wet, yes. wet the ground a little bit, yeah. Yeah. The first time I had heard the term Zurich was from, a, um, from the, I think it was the director of the uh, Denver Botanic Garden talking at a conference and when conferences started to become more prevalent and, you know, he was talking about how they have a Zurich garden at the Denver Botanic Garden so that people can see what can grow in drier locations. And, you know, we have things here in, in our region that grow in dry locations too. Um, but we also have plants that can actually go in both environments, wet and dry. And that really is a, a plant that's what I would classify as Olympian because it can grow in both environments just from one spectrum to the other. But not all plants can do that. No, and there are a number of plants that can be temporarily flooded, you know, for like a day or two. They can tolerate that. I mean, we're in semi-arid desert and I think, you know, we're headed toward desert really mm. over how many years i don't know but a lot of farmers would agree with me but we implement and teach about water wise gardening which means the like plants in like water zones and that's a better way to help take care of your landscape right we had uh, a woman by the name of constance fabian on from denver who works for Bartlett Tree, and she was telling us about the trees that are planted in that area. What are some of the ones that you see on a regular basis besides Colorado spruce? What are some of the other ones? You said elm and what else? You'd see catalpas. Mm -hmm. You would see, unfortunately, still a lot of maples, silver maple. We talked about Siberian elm, which is invasive. And you would see a handful of Tatarian maple that are starting to crop up. And birch trees, people like birch trees, people like to pull the aspens in. And oddly enough, there are some older stands of aspens that do very well here. So ginkgo trees live only in the very southern area of, of my five counties in Burlington. They can do okay there. Burr oaks, pinions, and junipers are just about everywhere for windbreaks. Of course, if you go to Southern Colorado and into New Mexico, that's natural match with junipers and pinions. And the pinion pines, in case people don't know, is that's where our pine nuts come from. Yes, yes. And they don't like to be irrigated. And sometimes people will bring them into their landscape and irrigate them on a regular basis. Oh. And within a few years, they're gone. Wow. They lose their needles, they get scale, they have all these issues, and they're gone. So that's an interesting thing. So the idea of moving out to Colorado is not to have that green lawn that you see in the, the east. It's to have a xeric kind of landscape. But I think when you were saying, you know, people will still pick that plant that needs a lot of water, I still think that there's people who have a vision of something in their head that they believe is what creates a garden. And one of the things that I always like to think of is what's the color of the landscape and that'll tell you what the plant palette should be. My friend from Australia said, well, their landscape is typically browns, creams, whites, blue greens, 
And I said, oh, that tells me what kind of, when she came up here to, to Pennsylvania to see our area, she goes, oh my God, it's so green. I don't know, I don't know where to look. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't know where to look. She said, we only get this when we irrigate our, our lawn. <laughs> <laughs> it, I've had that exact same reaction from West Coast people. It's yeah. true, you know. You come into the in the east and you see the green and you just think, oh my gosh, it's it's amazing. I took a master gardener on a trip to Wisconsin and we drove and she was gawking at the trees in Iowa. And I'm like, what what's the matter? What are you looking at? Because I grew up. It, outside of Philly, you know? So I'm used to all the trees. And she's like, look at that. Look at their courthouses. It's just loaded with trees. I'm saying, yeah, this is the way it is back east. <laughs> and you were in Iowa. Yeah, and you in were in Iowa. Iowa, yes. <laughs> yeah, and, and Iowa doesn't have nearly as much as we have here in the east. So, and I think it's it pay tribute to the extension agents and how important they are clear across the country. I think that you have a very important job, not only of education, but you're anchoring our landscapes. You're anchoring our, our environments to make sure that they are what they're supposed to be rather than what somebody else thinks they should be with a hose, you know? You just described me because I will look at a client and I will calmly say after they've asked me, well, what kind of trees can I have here? And I'll look at them and I'll say, you do realize you live on the prairie. Now, of course, you know, the Dust Bowl, it brought in these windbreaks and they were here for a purpose and they're planted so close together that there is no snow to be captured now. And so they're in high competition with one another. And so what do you do? You have to begin to thin them out or water, 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 water. And like I said, the Ogallala Aquifer, we're all dependent on it. Our small towns, our farmers, these windbreaks. What do you do? You have to slowly change their mindset. You have to slowly, like in the webinar we put together for the people that wanted these trees, is to demonstrate that irrigation is not the way to properly water your tree unless you actually have a misting system that has the certain trees on a particular zone, you turn it on and you water those trees. But when you water your turf, you're not giving those trees enough water. And you know, if you clear the turf away from the trees and make a huge ring and then put mulch you know, up to that drip line, you're going to have better root development than if you left the turf on top. And they're amazed. That's exactly they're, right. They're yep. amazed when yep. you show them these pictures. This is what research bears out. And that's what Colorado State University as a land-grant university does. We take the research and we share it as much as we can in as many ways as we can. People give me an opening, I'll take it. But... I have always, in whatever job capacity I've been in, tried to leave my section of the world a little better off than when I found it. And that means helping people raise the bar on their understanding. That's really important. And that's not always easy to do. Linda, have you seen any cool innovations that homeowners have done for capturing gray water? Are there any systems in place to repurpose, readapt a house so that you can water with what's coming out of the washing machine or other sources? I haven't run into any of my clients doing that. Yeah. You know, a handful with rain barrels, you know, and there are some small towns still fighting that. They don't like you to use the rain barrel. You're taking water away from their reservoir and... You know, mm, yeah. I don't know if it's a valid argument necessarily. I, I just think that it's runoff and it goes into ditches. And, you know, if I'm taking 20 gallons and, you know, we've had plenty of precipitation, I'm saving water somewhere along the line and not using it from the reservoir. So it's a, it's, yeah. it's a give and take, 
Right, right, right. When my daughter was a teenager, you know how they take long showers once a day. And I did rig up a very primitive system. So that from the second floor bathtub, the green garden hose was like dropped in, she'd shower. I'd be downstairs outside, get the siphon going, and then just water this uh, bed of azaleas and rhododendron. It worked pretty good. I was before Google, so I didn't even know if a little bit of uh, shampoo was going to harm things, but it worked out pretty well. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's cool. There's more green roofs popping up, but it's more into the city. It's not out here yeah. yet. I would love to see that happen here. But the one thing that I've learned here is that people out here like to have things demonstrated to them. Demonstrate to me that it works, and then mm -hmm. I'll go ahead and mm -hmm. try it. That's why we have the demonstration gardens. See, this plant works. Right. You're not right. even the show me state, are you? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to steal that. <laughs> Who is the show me state? I forget. Missouri. Is Missouri? Yes, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> Look at you. Very good, lady. <laughs> the show me state. Aren't... And we love Missouri. We're not poking fun at no. Missouri. We're no. just, we're, we're loving Missouri. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but it's true. Some people need to see how it's done. They are, they learn from a visual presentation and a lot of people do. They're hands-on learners, they're visual learners and they need to, they need to see how it's done. And that's, that's an important part of what you're doing and you're aware of that. So that's really, that's a really good thing. Yeah. I myself like hands-on as, you know, visual, but then I have a, a talent that I will, if a client asks me a question about a landscape suggestion, I get a, a picture in my head and I can be on that property or I can be talking to them on the phone. And then I start describing it to them. And more times than not, they've stopped and said, my husband and I were just talking about that the other night. And it's like, <laughs> well, intuitively, that is what you are supposed to do. So you have a choice. You can do it or not. Well, I actually have to confess, I've always been a little bit of a, had a fascination with uh, populace as a genus. And uh, I was getting back to quaking aspen. Is it still around? And do you ever get a sense that you're seeing the uh, Schmidt's introduction called prairie gold that is supposedly drought resistant or, or even more drought resistant? I haven't seen it here, but we do have aspen, older stands of aspen that people have brought in. But aspen really have a problem struggling here uh, okay. with leaf spot and drought. The kinds of plants that are here are not doing well. And a few that I can think of in Holyoke and Burlington have managed to stick around. But if we continue with our lack of precipitation and our drought, I, yeah. I don't see them. They're out of their range. I tell people, you're trying to do something with a plant that is totally out of its environment. And so you're going to spend a lot more resources to try and control and add back into the environment what it needed. And it's it's not going to work because you're not going to be able to do it. You met, what, what are some of the shrubs that you have out there that are, are more durable too, to give you another layer? Otentilla, uh, mountain mahogany is my favorite. Apache plume. We have the original traveler's rose, they call it. It's a yellow rose. They have it in pink and red. That is absolutely durable. It didn't, it wasn't a native here. It was introduced here, but it, it's a wonderful plant. It's hardy, drought tolerant. What was the name of it again? It's called a traveler's rose. Traveler's rose. Or at least that's one of the common names of it. I had just planted a whole grouping of potentilla on my um, my client's property. We we actually were working together, do coaching, and um, he said it doesn't look like much. I said, "Well, wait until it gets a little bit bigger. It's going to look really amazing." And it's on a slope, so a little bit more dry there, so it'll really pick up nicely. We have asters out here that do really well. Cotoneasters is a fun one. We have a silver fountain. Budlia, which is in the plant select program. That's a great shrub. It gets about eight to 10 feet tall and is amazing when it flowers. 
So you, you have a really nice palette of plants, some with smaller leaves, some with bigger leaves. Interesting fall color yellow would be the main color that you would have in the fall. Is that correct? I think so. I think so. Uh, there are a few reds here and there, uh, sometimes with Tatarian maple, like the picture I sent you, I was standing in front of a Tatarian maple and it had some yellow and reds in it. But the thing with those is the Samara in the spring and through the summer, some people say it looks like Christmas in July because those winged seeds are just red as anything and they'll just fill the tree and it's beautiful. That's amazing. Yeah, so you get your you get your fall in your summertime. Right, 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 right. Well, this has been a real treat, Linda, to have you on our podcast and to hear about how you helped your communities with the derecho. And I think more people need to be aware of they can go in and help after a major storm. And it does usually take, as Jason said last week, that it takes about a a year before you can actually plant after a major episode like that by the time you get your resources gathered and and the amount of plant material that you need that's really good to know it's really good to know and it's good to know that you as an extension agent have made that happen yeah he's he's right it takes a long time for those grant funds to come in to get approved and to do all the legwork before you even get to the grants but yeah he's he's right and i i thank you for inviting me today this has been wonderful yeah, it strikes me, Linda, the work you're doing, it's a little bit of a theme now with our guests is that you're really a frontline worker with this climate catastrophe. We all went into horticulture because we like roses and pretty green things. But now look where we are with, with the ratios and tornadoes. And uh... What can we say? You know, you, we've all got to do our part where we are to make it better than what it is. And we have to go along with the flow. If it's gonna change into a desert and we can't stop that, then that's the way it's gonna be. And we have to educate people as how to segue into that. Yeah, and I'll tell you, there was a very interesting article this week in Outside Magazine, uh, kind of challenging people like, don't let yourself become a climate refugee. Don't think that upstate New York and northern Wisconsin and Minnesota is going to be the panacea. Stay put and figure it out. Don't go buy five acres, you know, up near the Canadian border so that you can get away from it all because uh, that's cheating. Well, I, I got to say, you know, I guess it was two years ago now, and my aunt was still alive living in Philly, and she told me that it had hailed. And I said, in Philly? And, you know, you'd think, nah, you're kidding me. No, it hailed. And so where can you go now that you don't have tornadic winds or hurricanes or hail? Nowhere. That's right. Because the very next year, the Midwest was hit with the same storm that we had. And it flooded them. It, it wiped out their crops. The crops here laid straight down. We had a Ferris wheel in the fairgrounds that it looked like somebody bent it all up. They like just put their hands on both sides and mm. just mangled it. Yeah. So we have to plant trees. We have to take care of our environment. And this whole movement of regenerative ag is, is like talking to Robert Rodale. It's what he said years ago. You know, work with Mother Nature do what she needs, healthy soil. And again, like what you're doing is sometimes you're going to be talking to people who are hearing these concepts for the first time versus, you know, a conversation like we're having, we're all speaking the same language. It's, it's getting out there and talking to my neighbor across the street like, hey, uh, you've been running your blower for the last 35 minutes. Any chance you would want to pick up a rake and a broom and quiet things down a little bit? <laughs> or, or, stop, uh, or stop using a riding lawnmower, use an electric, yeah. or, or yeah. you know, yeah. or maybe change your grass over so you only have to mow it twice a year and water less. And there's a lot of grasses that don't like to be mowed. They just like to lay there and do their thing. <laughs> I, I wonder what my neighbors think because they move into this house with a lot and a half and I had two median strips in front and I tore the grass out. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I put native plants in and I wasn't going to bother watering it. And so now I'm implementing buffalo grass in certain areas along the hottest mm. part where the curb meets the road. And I put in uh, rudbeckia and behind them I'm putting in buffalo grass. I don't want to water. I'm just going to let it do its thing and take over and say, amen, go for it. One last thing we have to do, Linda, before we go, is to ask you your favorite tree or your as, as house as your spirit tree or group of trees that you love so much or have had a connection to since childhood. Well, I'll say this, dogwood. There was a dogwood at Marion Tribute House. And yeah. I would go and it had a low limb that came like straight out and then up. And I would go there and I would sit in that tree whenever I was upset or, you know, frustrated with my parents or whatever. And I would just stay there for half hour, an hour, and then walk home. So dogwood. Lovely. Are you from Lower Marion? Yes, I am. Oh, very cool. Lower Marion High School grad and well, the rest is history. Yeah, I worked in Bala Kenwood for 15 years. Oh my years, gosh. So. My, da my dad was a teacher at Harrison High School. Harrison High, Har oh, wow. High School, sorry. Well, thank you again, Linda. We do appreciate you and, and the work that you're doing. Keep it up. Thank you so much. And it's been an honor, you're, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you for what you do. Continue doing it. Same to you. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromeda and Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank <laughs> you.